This is City AM Unregulated. I'm Emma Hazlitt. On this week's show, Media Agency Life with Karen Blackett. <laughs> As I closed the door, I heard, ah! <laughs> I sort of opened the door and there was just this heap of people who had fallen over each other. I just shut the door and carried on presenting. The many moving parts of the industry. Econometricians, social media planners, content division, event planners, consumer insight team. On the diversity in the industry. White middle-aged men. And the racism and sexism she's faced during her career. There's no way we would have had a female account director, let alone a black one. Hello and welcome to City AM Unregulated, where this week we are joined by one of, if not the most powerful woman in advertising, Karen Blackett, the chairwoman of Mediacom UK. So Karen... That's an introduction. (laughs) First things first. (laughs) Um, Tell us how you got into advertising. So from... Being very little, I'd always had a real interest in TV ads. You know, I grew up in a traditional West Indian household and you had to ask to have the TV on and TV was a treat. It wasn't a ride passage. (laughs) And I was so interested and fascinated in the ads as well as the programmes. But I had no idea at that time that that was even a possible career. So... My mum and dad, first generation immigrants to the UK from Barbados. Myself and my sister uh, wanted us to have what they saw as professions and vocations which were high standing back home in Barbados. So accountant, lawyer, doctor, solicitor. And, you know, they didn't know anything about advertising and marketing and and that industry Mm -hmm. at all because it just didn't exist in Barbados at that time. I studied what I loved at school and I loved geography. So I ended up doing um, a geography (laughs) degree um, down at uh, the University of Portsmouth. And when I left, I really wanted to try and get into the advertising industry. So I found out a bit more about it. I knew about the ad agencies, but I didn't know about media agencies. Part of my degree, uh, we had to do statistics and it was on that side that I sort of tried to get into the industry so um, I sort of applied to be a media auditor that somebody after campaigns audited whether or not you'd reached the right target audience whether you'd not you'd bought the media properly so I went in for an interview at the time that auditor was part of a media agency Mm -hmm. and it was at that interview which you know it was an ad that I answered in the independent at that interview they asked me to come back and do a second interview and then recommended that I went to a different part of the agency which was about planning and buying campaigns and that's how I got in. But that's almost going in through a side door, isn't it? It's not... Yeah, because, you know, I knew about the ad agency side and the ad agency side and unfortunately nepotism still exists and it was even worse back when I entered the industry in the early 90s and the ad agency side at that time very much recruited from a small pool of universities and very Mm -hmm. much recruited in their own mirror image and that wasn't me. Um, pretty much Don Draper. Very much so. Advertising is based on one thing, happiness. So the industry at the time was run by white middle-aged men. Is it Um, still run by white middle-aged men? It is significantly better. So Mm -hmm. just under 30% of the industry is now run by women, um, which is great. Um, I still think it could be better when you think about more than 50% of the intake are female. Yeah. Um, so we've still got a long way to go, but we are doing better than other industries. And I think we are recognising, and the most important thing is we recognise that we need to change, and it's about talent 
it's not about gender, it's about talent and allowing talent the opportunity to come through. I mean, when you first got into it, what was it like working at an ad agency? Was it like something out of Mad Men? I sort of started in the industry in the early 90s, which is when the media departments broke away from the advertising agencies to form Mm -hmm. media independence. And it was great fun. It was absolutely great fun. Um, It was a young industry. It is still a young industry. But we work incredibly hard. I mean, you know, I mean, we're talking about media agencies. We're talking about buying side, blah blah blah. Can we can we kind of define the differences between the types of agencies yeah. here? So the ad agency tends to be the agency that makes the ad. So mm-hmm. they will create the story, create and put out the content. The media agency um, traditionally was the agency that then planned and bought the campaign. So decided who was the right target audience, what was the amount of money that we needed to reach a certain number of that target audience and what medium um, we should use in order to communicate with that target audience. But media agencies have changed so much because we all have a smartphone in our pocket which gives off digital signals and data which allows us to target even more. So media agencies now, I mean if I think about Mediacom, we have 45 econometricians that work at the agency. It's a great job title. <laughs> we are now to be a head of our business science team. Um, so 45 econometricians, we have social media planners, we have a content division because we do create digital content yeah. um, because the communication industry has changed so much that it's not just us talking at consumers, it's allowing consumers to talk back. We also have event planners, we have people that work across market so we have our international department and we have our consumer insight teams for finding out those nuggets of information that might make you choose one brand over over another really understanding a consumer story so the media agency has grown um, into such an area and data's key to that so data analysts being at the agency um, is absolutely key to us fine-tuning and targeting our work. So, you know, I want to go back to the kind of agency boom time. Yeah. Did, what what kind of sexism, I mean, did you experience sexism or did you just go in and everything was fine? When I entered the industry, and so that was the early 90s for me, so when yeah. I entered the industry, two things struck me. One, One there, were there were a number of incredible women at the agency that I started at, but they weren't in senior roles, and that did strike me. Yeah. And two, there were, this was a top three agency at the time, so probably about 300 people. And there were three people of colour in the entire agency, which was myself, my immediate boss and the receptionist. And I thought that was a bit odd. So I, I, I honestly did think that was odd, just because I had grown up in Reading, which was very multicultural. As far as I was aware, my family and friends had to buy cars and chocolate bars and soap powder and all the things that everybody else did yeah yet there was nobody that understood their story and advertising is about understanding a consumer's story and being able to relate to that person um and, you know the Nobel prize winner john steinbeck said if the story's not about the reader they won't listen and so i always thought that was really odd so did i experience sexism no Um, I didn't because I think I worked at an agency which appreciated talent and people that were wanted to win and I am quite competitive. Um, Did I experience sexism outside of the agency Um, when you go into meetings or in different environments? Yeah. And it's 
little forms of sexism where you're the woman in the meeting room and you're talked over or you're making a point and people don't listen. So it's the, that's yeah. the form of sexism that I experience and you learn to have presence and you learn it. I did read um, about a pitch that you're doing for a serial client where they you found out later that they'd said that Mediacom were good but there's there's no way we'd have a female director. How, I mean, let what, alone a black one. Let alone a black yeah. one. I mean, what goes through your head when you hear something like that and how did you even find out? So it is a small industry mm -hmm. and you know your competitors and the competitor, we had a mutual good friend in common and the winning agency took the client out um, to dinner to thank them for the business and it was during that dinner, you know, the client talked about the other agencies and they talked about Mediacom and that's when the two clients sort of said, you know, Mediacom were actually quite good, they were really good, but there's no way we would have had a female account director, let alone a black one. When and was this? Probably around, sometime between 98 and 2002. Yeah, I'd say, yeah. So, um, out of life I said that that didn't hurt because it's personal. That's not about the work. It's not about what we've presented. It's not about coming up with the wrong solution. That's about me. And at the time, I was an account director. And it was my role as an account director to be the person that would coordinate all the activity for that client if they became a client of the agency. So I'd pull in the specialist departments. I'd be the one that would go to meetings to get the brief. So I would have been working really closely with that person those two individuals because I was their point person for mm -hmm. the agency so I felt responsible I, initially I felt responsible and I felt guilty that I'd lost the agency a pitch and I that's did I, but that's immediately how I felt guilty that I'd lost the agency a pitch and then I felt angry mm -hmm. um, and I felt really angry because I don't want to do anything about my gender I do not want to do anything about my ethnicity I'm proud of both and yet it was seen as a negative by the client. And then you use your anger. So um, you can sort of hold on to it and um, let it eat yourself up or you use it and you go out and you win loads of other bits of business and you make the client sorry that they didn't appoint you. And I totally believe in karma as well. Mm -hmm. Those two individuals, so two white men who I don't think had much exposure to anybody other than people that looked like themselves, um, left that client within 12 months. Really? Not on their own accord. That's very gratifying. Totally. And I do believe in karma. <laughs> but, you know, you use anger and it's a fuel. So uh, you use it to win other bits of business. And in all fairness, if we had won that account mm -hmm. and I would have been forced to work with those people day in, day out, I would have been miserable because yeah. I would have been constantly trying to please, yet for whatever reason they wouldn't have liked whatever it was I came up with. Fast forward 13-odd years and you were you were the, became the first business person to top the power list of the most influential black people yes. in the UK. Yes. I mean, are those lists really still needed? Are they still important? Until we have diversity and real inclusion, unfortunately they are. Is there too much focus on female boardroom diversity? I think it's about diversity of thought. So whether it's ethnicity, race, um, whether or not you're able-bodied, whether or not it's your sexual persuasion, it is about, the focus should be about diversity of thought. When you have, and there's enough evidence 
that suggests that when you have true diversity, companies are more successful, more successful in terms of financial returns, in terms of share price, more successful in terms of innovation, more successful in terms of productivity, happier workforces, less churn. There is enough evidence, whether it's from McKinsey, Harvard Business Reviews, there's enough evidence that supports it. So I do truly believe that diversity of thought is really important. And you do need lists like the Power List, not only to demonstrate to headhunters that there are people out there from different groups, because headhunters tend to have a network and they go back to that same network when it comes to filling positions, um, rather than trying to do a bit more graft and hard work and expand their network and portfolio. But also, it's really important for people like me when they were younger to see what is possible and to know mm -hmm. about all of the different roles. So yeah. if we go back to when I was growing up and I really liked ads, but I didn't know that there was a career in it, it's really important to see somebody that looks like me with a range of different careers that is possible. So I, I still think it's really important because it's role modelling. Oh, hey, Emma here, your unregulated presenter. While we're talking about the best ways to advertise, here's another example of an advert that works in a podcast. You can get in touch with advertising at audioboom.com if you want to tap into a medium with an ace audience like this. In the meantime, be a love, head over to our iTunes feed and give us a rating on the podcast store. Leave your Twitter handle and I'll even follow you. It's unregulated. It's all about professional connections. Speaking of which, let's connect back with Karen Blackett. I, think, I mean, one of the things that has really struck me about you is that you've been very brave in a lot of the things that you've done. And, I'm, you know, I was listening to you on another podcast talking about when you had your son. And just before you were promoted to chief executive, you decided that, you know, you were engaged to his father, but decided against being with him. How much bravery does it take to do something like that? I th uh, well, it, for that particular situation, it's about knowing what's right for you. And that situation wasn't right for me. I, I think I would have had a son who was unhappy if myself and his dad had stayed together. Instead, I've got a son, 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 who's, who's, who's incredibly confident and incredibly happy because he has me in his life and he does see his dad as well. And it's much better because we just were not suited. And, you know, I know my own brand. So it's it's knowing yourself, which is really important. But you would, and then very shortly thereafter, you were promoted to chief executive. That was, am I allowed to swear? Because that was holy as shit. Much as you want. <laughs> <laughs> it was, oh my God. Because that's such an honour. Um, you know, Mediacom is the largest media agency in the UK. It is incredibly successful. It has been brilliant at transforming businesses that we work for and transforming in our own business. And it's a huge honour um, and a huge responsibility as well, uh, running that company, because you have 1,200 people who you need to motivate. 1,200 people that are looking at you for a vision. And I also had a young son who at the How time was, was nine months old. How do you do that? How old? do you... Yeah. No, he's a bit older, actually. He's probably about 15 months old. How do you... But, I mean, 
that, you know, I, I approached it like I would a communications plan, <laughs> planned it. Uh, so I really did plan what I needed to do, planned what I needed to do in order to be able to succeed at being a good mum and being mm-hmm. present for my son because I didn't want to outsource childcare and have my son brought up by a series of childminders and nannies. I did want to be present and be a good mum because I had the benefit of that in my own life. But I also love my job and I love what I do and I wanted to do that justice because I was following in the footsteps of some amazing CEOs that ran the agency. So Jane Ratcliffe, incredible. Nick Lawson, incredible. Stephen Adlin, incredible. All of whom have shaped and helped evolve the agency. So I set my stall out. So I do believe part of that celebrating your difference and existing in part of a Venn diagram is you have to be able to speak for what you want in order to succeed and you have to speak up. So I was very vocal about what I could do and what I couldn't do, how I was going to work, what hours I would work. I was probably more productive than I'd ever been because I needed to fit everything in, but my hours of working would be different. How did your employees react to you working those kind of hours I mean, one of the things that I wanted to do when I became CEO was ensure that I was accessible. So I don't sit in a conventional office. I have an office which have uh, the equivalent of what some people would have as a kitchen extension. So bifold doors, which you can sort of fold back. So I sit open plan. It's not your door is always open. It's it's the whole wall. The wall is open. Um, So I sort of sit open plan. I specifically... Um, sat myself near the kitchen point because that's the place where everybody congregates. Um, So I made myself accessible. And of course, you always have to have those meetings where it's a door shut, so the bifold doors Mm -hmm. fold down and shut. Um, But I made sure that I was visible when I was in the agency and people knew and my clients knew between certain hours, so between the hours of 5.30 and 7, I'm not available because I'm travelling home I am then at home, I'm doing part of the bedtime routine. And then when my son's gone to bed, I'm available for conference calls, I will check emails, I will do what is needed. It just means that there is a window, which is a blackout window, when I'm not needed. And you can manage with somebody else, but I'll then come back online. I think as long as you manage people's expectations... People are human beings and they sort of accept it and it allows, it gives other people permission to work flexibly as well. I've heard you say before that you've used a life coach for for yeah. a few years. I mean, do you think that's kind of crucial to help people who are in leadership positions? I think I have found it invaluable. I work with a company called Pressure Point. The life coach that I have is a guy called Adrian Green and I think you have to find somebody that you have chemistry with. Adrian used to be a British athlete. He was a steeplechase winner. He's also worked in the advertising and marketing industry. So he's got the combination of competitive, focused, but also gets the industry that I'm in and the importance of communications in the industry. So I think it's really... And for me, he's been somebody that I've been able to turn to when I have those moments where I lack confidence and I lack self-belief and he's been able to help me through and navigate some tricky and complex situations where you just need an objective viewpoint. I want to move on to the the kind of process of of ads and also you know life in an agency and 
there are a lot of people who want to work for an agency. What, what do you look for in new recruits? So for me, it's somebody who's got... So it's great if somebody's got a first or a 2-1, brilliant. That shows aptitude to learn. Mm-hmm. But also I'm really interested in somebody that's done something quite quirky or interesting because that just shows me that they've got something to them. So whether that's somebody who's in a band or somebody that started their own blog or somebody... So I look for somebody that's... So you look in the interests bits of CDs. Interests and somebody that's a bit of a self-starter as well. So somebody that may have formed their own company and are doing selling, I don't know, jewellery from an online website that shows a little bit of aptitude and focus and a self-starter. Um, somebody that may have worked on a school newspaper or magazine or had worked in the student union on the radio, um, somebody that's done something outside of just studying the particular subject that they've gone to school or university to do is what I look for. And also somebody that can talk to me about what their favourite ad is. What's your favourite ad? I've got a few. So at the moment, and and this is because of my son, I absolutely love the money supermarket ads (laughs) with the the men dancing. dancing. I mean, my son imitates it. He finds it hilarious. (laughs) Save money at Money Supermarket and feel... Give it to me, I'm worth it. Epic. So I do love the money supermarket ads. Yeah. So I do love those ads, but I also have ads from my childhood, which I, I really remember. I'm a secret lemonade drinker. Shh. Oh, it's, oh, it's. I'm a trying to keep it up, but it's one of those nights. Oh, it's. You know, I do talk a lot because I'm a child of the 70s, so I remember there was R. White's Lemonade, and I remember that ad of a guy, Sonic Triggers, not used enough these days in advertising. I remember the, the music for that ad and the guy coming downstairs in the middle of the night, opening the fridge and swigging back uh, a bottle of R. White's Lemonade, wearing striped pyjamas. And then when I had my son, anything with babies in, I suddenly liked, so... Let's observe the effect of Evian on your body. The Evian dancing babies uh, and roller skating babies ad, I love. Put causal ads as well, so P&G, Like a Girl, Sport England, love the causal ads, which are real. This Girl Can, is, yeah. that, is that Nike at the moment? That, no, no, This Girl Can is P&G. And then Obviously. Like a Girl is Sport England. <laughs> so it's not working that well. <laughs> <laughs> it is. <laughs> I have heard, though, about a pitch in which, um, I think it was Wrigley's, in which there was a roller disco and a bubble machine. Tell yes. me about that. So that's probably one of my all-time favourite pitches, actually, and that's when um, pitch theatre wasn't commonplace in our world. So um, I think with any presentation, a client, again, it's understanding your target audience, mm-hmm. understanding the client and what the client is going to be seeing. And a client may be seeing four or five agencies in one day and each of those agencies may have an hour and a half or two hours to present. It is a long day for a client. So being able to get to the nugget of truth, to be able to find that insight, and then to get across that insight in an entertaining and memorable way is really important. And for that particular client and for that particular pitch, bringing it to life was incredibly important. So... Um, so for Wrigley's, um, who are still a client now, um, 
we answered the brief, but we also um, added to the brief. So we answered the questions that they had and then we said, right, with the money that we're saving and the value that we can deliver, we believe we can support some more of your brands. So we talked about one of their retro brands, which was um, Juicy Fruit. So we created uh, a media strategy for Juicy Fruit. And part of it was about celebrating everything that was old school, which is why we themed um, the meeting room like a roller disco. And it was about Juicy Fruit sponsoring and putting roller discos around the UK. Do you have roller skaters? So we had members of staff get on their roller boots. Uh, we got T-shirts printed <laughs> and they and we had, we were presenting from a DJ deck. We're using 12-inch records and vinyls as part of the presentation. So, um, and it was, and it, we enjoyed it and the client enjoyed it. And I will always remember one of our global account directors, Nigel, was one of the guys that was roller skating around the room. And so they were roller skating and then we opened the door so they could go out and we can carry on with the presentation. So I had the door open while people roller skated out and there was a slight ramp as she went out. And as I closed the door, I heard, ah! I sort of opened the door and there was just this heap of people who had fallen over each other. I just shut the door and carried on presenting. So it's it was memorable. I mean, how how overboard have agencies gone on these pictures? That, did you know what? That used to happen in sort of the early 2000s, mid 2000s to try and make sure that you were memorable and stand out. And I think now uh, that doesn't happen to the, to the same extent. It is much more about um, how you are going to unlock further value and really understanding the complex communication system that we now operate in with the rise of things like social media, how are you going to make sure that you have a two-way conversation with consumers? So that extent of pitch theatre doesn't happen anymore. That's boring. <laughs> it's fun, but it doesn't happen anymore. I would like to talk about the future of advertising. What you know? Where are we going to be in 10 years? We've got social media into the mix now. What does 10 years' time look like? Are we going to have virtual reality? If I knew that, I would be making a mint. Um, I really would. Uh, of course, we are going to have VR will be important. I think when you've got things like Amazon Echo and, uh, and you know, Alexa, I think looking at the virtual assistant um, and how brands fit into that world is going to be really important as well. So making sure it's not just about a consideration list, it's actually about a priority list and making sure that brands fit into that priority list. So, you know, making sure that when you're talking to your equivalent of whatever um, Amazon Echo is that you have in your home and you're asking to find out the latest information about insurance deals, making sure that somehow you have you know, a, a particular brand as part of that list of, of all of the different um, deals which are out there. I mean, you know, we're on a podcast. We're interested in podcasting. What What's the potential for podcasts? It's really interesting. We have, um, uh, we do a podcast series at the agency. So we have a brilliant young man that works in our digital department that started a programme of interviewing our different leaders and doing it as a podcast. And the number of people, you know, there's 1,200 people in the agency now, so it's difficult for all of them to fit into agency presentations that you may do. Um, and not everybody can log on to a webinar that you may do. And the podcast has become a way of people getting to know our leaders. And he's interviewed a range of different people. So... 
Um, you know, and people come up to me saying, oh, I was listening to you in the bath the other day, which is a little bit too much information. But it's a way of, you know, it's a way of making sure that you're accessible. So people being able to consume content when they want in their own time, where they want is incredibly important. And podcasts are a way of doing that. Do you think there's a, an increasing commercial market for them? Definitely. I mean, you only have to walk down the street and see people lost in their own world with their headphones on, listening to whatever content it is that, you know, they're finding that they haven't had a chance to listen to and to catch up on. I do. I think it's about content on demand and that's one way of having content on demand. How can small firms get big in marketing? What what? one piece of advice would you give to an an entrepreneur with no money? I think that I think it works both ways. So I think when big businesses need an injection of innovation and sometimes their own processes and systems won't allow them to be agile enough, they need to partner with a smaller company. And I think smaller companies can benefit from a bigger company by having access to business mentoring or access to a supply chain or funds. So I, I talk a lot about skunk works in our industry. So which is when um, I think it started in World War Two when a fighter jet in the in the World War Two American fighter jet was made from plan to build in 45 days because they commissioned a separate team of people from an organisation to work on creating this fighter jet. Um, and so I talk a lot about skunk works and large organisations finding those unique, smaller companies to be able to bring that injection of new thinking into a larger organisation where they're not limited by the framework that already exists. So I would advise a small entrepreneur to find a large company that they believe a, they have the same values of as, um, and that B, there could be a mutually beneficial relationship. Um, that's what I would do if I was running my own small business. Karen Blackett, it's been an absolute pleasure having you. Thank you so much for coming. My pleasure. With thanks to Karen Blackett, this has been City AM's unregulated podcast, which you can subscribe to on iTunes, Spotify or RSS or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week's Twitter conversation. Tweet me at Emma Hazlitt, that's with two T's, and let me know what the iTunes rating you left said. Listen to episode 21, The Art of Charm. Lots of ideas there. See you next week. Unregulated by City AM is an audio boom production. Produced by Jamie Wareham and presented by City AM digital editor Emma Hazlitt. I'm a secret lemonade drinker. Oh, it's. Oh, it's.